This morning is that morning for me, so bear with me. I'm, I've been under the weather the past few days, and I'm praying that my voice is going to hold out. So uh, be praying with me. What would it take for me to be an NFL linebacker? Why are you laughing? A lot taller and a lesser weight, right? Not to mention all the training that comes with that vocation. Uh, So in other words, it would be sort of nothing short of a miraculous transformation to make me into that. I didn't win the genetic lottery when it comes to being an NFL linebacker. Uh, Something like that is what it takes to bring us from death to life, from the domain of Satan to the kingdom of Christ, from denying Jesus to boldly proclaiming his name, from crucifying Jesus to repentance and faith in him. What is needed for that to take place, for those transitions? Nothing short of a miraculous transformation. And that's exactly what happened on that Pentecost day some 2,000 years ago when the Spirit came. So this morning, we're going to be looking together at Acts chapter 2. We're going to read the first 11 verses, but we're going to be drawing in the whole of the chapter. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to to one another, what does this mean? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And as we come this morning, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit, we ask that you would be present, that you would open hearts to hear and to respond to the call of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to back up just a few verses in chapter 1, you would know that the disciples were gathering together in, a, in a, uh, an area of the temple, and they were praying. 
They are waiting because at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, He told them, wait for Me in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. So they are gathered together, 120 of them, which, by the way, is all that is needed for them to form their own synagogue. This is a new covenant community, and God is going to do a new thing. He is going to pour out His Spirit upon these people. If you'll remember the teaching of Jesus regarding the Spirit in John chapter 3, you can't see the Spirit. It's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. Right? We had a nasty storm last, last week. And we went to our friend's house in Clark Summit, and there was a tree, huge tree down. You can't see the wind, but you can sure see its effects. And so it is with the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit, but you know the Spirit is at work by the works that He works. This is accompanied by two signs. Two signs that the Spirit has come. A violent wind. The sound of a rushing wind. They hear this coming from heaven. Because where is Christ? He has ascended to His Father. He is sitting at the right hand of God. And so the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So they hear a rushing wind come from heaven. And then appears on tongues of violence is the power and presence of Jesus Christ. And the tongues of fire are a purging. Fire represents the judgment of God. But they're not consumed. And we'll talk about this later. But it's because Jesus has taken the full wrath of God. The full judgment of God. And in fact, these two signs both are a fulfillment of what John the Baptist said of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. He said, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. Sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so, as this group This new community, this new covenant community is gathered together praying, waiting for for God to come. The Holy Spirit descends upon them, fills the room with the power and presence of Christ, and appears on them the purging fire of judgment. And they begin to speak. They begin to speak in a miraculous way. And not only do they begin to speak, but people begin to hear. They hear the message. And so, we find that when the Spirit comes, He equips His people to tell His mighty works, and He opens ears so that others hear. And so, we want this morning to look at these two aspects of the Spirit's work at Pentecost. Hearts are open to speak, and hearts are opened to hear. Notice in, in verse 4 of chapter 2, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. But they began to speak in other tongues. You see, the Spirit gave them utterances. He equipped them for the mission of the proclamation of the gospel. Now, what is it, the first thing that you do when something good happens to you? You want to tell somebody, right? You want to put it on Instagram or Facebook. This is my status update. Great Things have happened to me. And you want other people to join with you in the good news, right? You want to share the blessings with other people. And so you make it known. 
And that's exactly what the disciples do. Immediately when the Spirit comes upon them, what did they do? But they go and they speak. They tell of the mighty works of God. We see that in this speech, there are two things that the Spirit gives. First, He gives a desire to speak. And then secondly, He gives them the words to speak. But notice that there are no resistance There's nobody resisting the Holy Spirit when He comes upon them. They do what they have been called to do. And this reminds us of something that Jeremiah said in in chapter 20, verse 9. He said, If I say I will not mention Him or speak any more in His name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot... You see, Jeremiah had a message to speak. And it wasn't a popular message. It was a message that was going to get him persecuted. It was a message that was going to lead to him being ostracized from the community. But he could not help but speak that message. It was like a fire in his bones. And it had to come out. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. There's no resistance. When the Spirit comes upon a people, they speak. In Israel's later history, Pentecost became a celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai. Now, do you remember the terrifying event of Israel gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. And God enshrouded Sinai in a cloud. And He spoke with a thunderous voice that made all of the people tremble and shake. And they said, no, we don't, we don't want to hear from God. You speak to us. You, Moses, go up and talk with God. And then you come back and tell us what He said. We don't want to be terrified by God. At Pentecost, we reverse Sinai. The apostles are in place of Moses, and the crowd is the people who are trembling. You see, they have been confronted with the Holy Spirit of God, and what they do is they go out and they speak, and they tell what? Of God's mighty works. So not only do they, are they given a desire by the Spirit, but the Spirit also gives them the words to speak. Notice, that these are unlearned men. They marvel. They said, they, in verse 6, sounds came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? These are unlearned men. They're from Galilee. Remember, that's the sticks. Right? They're, they're not in the ivory city, the ivory tower of Jerusalem. Right? They're out in Galilee of the nations. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Right? That's the idea here. And these Jews are saying, how is it that these unlearned men from Galilee are speaking to us in a language that we know? And they're telling us of the mighty works of God. How is this possible? Not only did the Spirit give the desire, but He gave them the words to speak. 
Notice what they are speaking. In verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What are the mighty works of God? Well, one of my favorite little books by John Murray, a theologian out of Westminster Seminary, the previous generation, entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And it's a helpful little book. It just very succinctly opens up the way of salvation. What is the mighty works of God? Well, it's nothing less than Jesus coming from heaven and seeking a bride. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that He came, He took on flesh, He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, and He declared to us peace by having His body torn asunder on the cross of Jesus Christ. Suffering as a curse for the sins that you have committed and will commit. And for all of the sins of his people, he suffered and died. And that mighty work made you no longer an enemy of God, but it reconciled you to the Father. That mighty work of God that tore down the strongholds of Satan. And no one saw it coming. No one thought that this work, that this mighty work of him suffering and dying was befitting of the sovereign Lord of the universe. They mocked it. And they still do. For what other message do we have but the foolishness of preaching the cross of Jesus Christ? A stumbling block and foolishness. What are the mighty works of God? It's simply the gospel. It's simply the way that God was at work not counting your sins against you, but reconciling you back to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And they go out. They receive the Spirit. And what do they begin to do? They begin to testify. They begin to bear witness that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you just weeks before crucified, He is the Lord of glory who you put to death. But God has raised him up and seated him in heaven. He's highly exalted him. That's the message that Peter brings. He says, you crucified the Christ. And they're cut to their heart. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. I want to to take a little bit of an excursus because, of course, we read this text and we have lots of questions about tongues. What does he mean by speaking in tongues? And how is this related, if it is related at all, to what some within the charismatic church may call speaking in tongues? Well, notice that they're speaking a discernible language. This is a a singular God, not to be it, right? We have multiple Pentecost in the same sense, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But notice that this is a discernible language that the people who are Jews, who are scattered throughout the dispersion, that is the Roman Empire, who speak all these different native languages, they have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. All of the males are required to come three times a year. And so there are literally millions of people gathered 
to celebrate this feast of Pentecost. And as they do, as they are there, they hear the disciples speaking to them in their native languages. They are speaking discernible languages. Secondly, we know that tongues is a judgment. We know from Isaiah 28, 11, which Paul refers to, 28.11 says, For by people of a strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. He is speaking about the Assyrians coming into their land. And they will, that will be the sign of God's judgment on them. And Paul picks that metaphor up and he says, Tongues are a sign of judgment on the covenant people of God. Why? Why is it a sign of judgment? Well, what happened? What happened on the the 50 days prior at Passover when they crucified Jesus Christ? They rejected Israel's Messiah. And as a judgment to that, God speaks to them in a language that they don't understand. Right? This is what Jesus is referring to when he refers to Isaiah 60. I I will come to this people and, and they will keep on hearing but never hear. They will keep on seeing but never see. And that is so that they will be judged. That's why he spoke to them in parables. That's why he said things that they did not understand because their hearts were hardened because they rejected the Lord's Messiah. And so tongues are a sign of judgment. They're a sign that God has judged his people because they have rejected his Messiah. And tongues are a sign of something new happening. They are the, accompany the gospel proclamation. And they declare its truthfulness just like miracles do. We don't believe that miracles continue in the same sense. That is, we don't believe that somebody has the gift of just going up to somebody and healing them. Now, of course, God can intervene in history and heal somebody. We, we believe that, of course. But we don't believe that somebody's particular ministry has the gift of healing because the apostolic ministry has been closed. There are no more apostles. The qualifications for being an apostle is somebody who is an eyewitness, who touched, who handled, who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are none of those still alive. And in fact, the apostolic witness is recorded for us in Scripture. And there is no longer any more Scripture being recorded. And so we believe that the sign gifts of tongues, miracles, those things have ceased with the apostolic office. We don't believe that they have any continuing relevance for the church, except maybe with God, through His Spirit, gifting people like Andrew with a felicity with the Japanese language, which, by the way, is not an easy task. Right to learn all the nuances of that language, God continues to raise up men and women who will translate the gospel into new cultures. Right, And that is an ongoing work of the Spirit just as it was at Pentecost. Okay, so you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm not an apostle. That, that's ruled out. So what, what significance does this event of Pentecost have for me? Of course, this is a singular event. The apostles 
are a transition people, right? So what happens to them is not necessarily how it happens to us. We don't believe that when the Spirit descended on them, they're now just suddenly becoming regenerate. God has already called these men. They've already been walking with Jesus. Already the fruits of faith are evident in their lives. So does this mean that their experience of the coming of the Spirit is normative for us? Should we expect that we would come to faith and then sometime we're the blessing of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no, we shouldn't expect that. The way that the Spirit works now is all in one moment, right? When we are called by the Lord, He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And we are made regenerate and we receive His Holy Spirit. And we should not look for something later. The apostles are occupying that territory between the old covenant and the new covenant that time of transition from the age, the old age or what paul calls this present age and the age that is to come the latter days we don't occupy that bridge place we are in the latter days we are those people who have been called by his spirit united to christ and that is all in one event By faith, we are united to Christ and we receive all the benefits of Christ. We don't wait for a second blessing. But we could think of Pentecost like a river that flows down. You might think of the river that we read about today in Ezekiel from our Bible reading plan. The river that comes from the temple, which when he goes out and measures it is a foot. And then he goes another length and it's two feet. And then on and on and he can't even wade it. Right? The Spirit's work proceeds from Pentecost and remains a blessing to his people today. And that's highlighted in the prophecy that Peter alludes to from Joel. He, he says in verse 17 of chapter 2, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is, of course, what Moses had hoped for. Do you remember this story in Numbers when when, the... there are many who are, uh, Moses is not able to do all of the work. And uh, so he takes a measure of his spirit and it's given to 70 elders who will help him rule over Israel. And there are two that were not with them in that um, giving of his spirit and they begin to prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, who was jealous for Moses when some of his spirit was given to the 70 elders, But Moses said this to him in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, the new covenant era is an era of unmediated access to God, the Father. We don't need another mediator besides the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that you don't need me to have access to Jesus Christ. You don't need another mediator besides the Lord Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit of God which resides in you, who is remaking you to be a beautiful temple 
a dwelling place from God. The Spirit was given as a gift, not just for your personal comfort, not just to assure you of the faith. He was that. He is a comforter. He comes and He takes the things of Christ and He applies them to you. But He is also so that you will bear witness to the mighty works of God. The Spirit continues to give the desire and the words to speak, the content of which is always Jesus Christ. But there is a way that we can grieve the Spirit, is there not? Nothing can shake your union with Christ. When you have been united to Christ, nothing can sever that bond. Not height, nor depth, nor life, nor death, nor anything can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But your experience of that union, your communion with God can be severed. You can grieve and you can quench the Holy Spirit of God. How do we do that? Largely through our sin. When we refuse to repent, when we allow other things to take precedent in our life besides the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we begin to grieve the Spirit. When we turn and we sin, know that we not sear our hearts. These things have the effect of dampening your desire to speak, your desire to bear witness, sometimes even confusing our language as in another babble so that you're incoherent. You don't make sense to the world around you. You see, our constant keeping up of our communion with God through our piety, through our daily walk with the Lord is important for our witness in a watching world. But it wasn't just speaking that took place when the Spirit came, but He also opens hearts to hear. As I mentioned earlier, this was a strategic time. Jerusalem is swelling almost overflowing with people from all over the world. What better time for the Spirit to be poured out upon His people and for them to go forth and speak the mighty works of God than when all the nations that are represented are there gathered as one place. Right? This is what we do when we try to reach out to internationals in our own community. We recognize that we have the nations at our doorstep. And this is a reverse of Babel. We read earlier from Genesis 10. In, in Babel, the people refused to spread out and fill the earth, right? But in this, a reverse of Babel, instead of a confusion of language, God opened their ears to understand. These unlearned men who don't normally speak these languages now begin to speak so that the confusion of languages is eradicated. Now they hear the mighty works of God. Instead of confusion, they are drawn to worship God. There's two images from Ezekiel that really inform what's taking place here in Pentecost. I want to read these few verses just to get a sense of what is taking place, what's being fulfilled. The first is from Ezekiel 36, verse 22. The prophet says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. 
And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You see, Israel failed in their witness to the nations that God is holy and He is to be reverenced as holy. They profaned the name of God amongst the nations. But what does God say? I'm going to gather you from the nations. What happens at Pentecost? All of the people of God are gathered from the nations to one place. Then what does He do? He cuts open their heart and He takes a heart of stone and He pours out His Spirit upon them. And what did they respond? They're cut to the heart. And they say, what do we do to be saved? And He sprinkles clean water on them. As Peter says, you repent and be baptized. But the other image is is the image of the valley of dry bones from Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel said, the hand of the Lord was upon me and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was filled with bones. And He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, You know. And then He said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When people began to speak the mighty works of God, He opens their heart to receive them. He breathes new life into them, and the dead bones begin to walk. They begin to live again because they hear the preaching of the Word. They hear that they have crucified Christ. But despite that, and because of that, God in that event was reconciling the world to Himself, was not counting their sins against them, was removing their enmity, was granting them peace. So at the same moment that he's gathered in all the nations to hear the gospel, at the same moment he's prepared these witnesses, these apostles, to to declare the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he takes away their heart of stone and he gives them a heart of flesh. And it's through the preaching of the word. And how do the people respond? If you look down at Acts chapter 2, verse 37, which we read last week, he said, Now when they heard this, they were caught to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. When the Spirit comes, He speaks through His people, and people respond. Their hearts were torn open at the message that Peter delivered. And you see, that that's what's happened. When the Gospel comes, we hear a hard word, a penetrating word, a cutting word, a cutting word, and that same thing happens today every time the same message of the Gospel is proclaimed. The same Spirit opens hearts to hear the Gospel today. Peter preached the same Christ that I preach. And it is the outpouring of the Spirit that leads to 3,000 souls being added to the church. I don't know about you, but I long for that. That is my prayer when I look out that window at this valley and I see dead bones and I long to see them come and have the breath of life breathed in them and sinews come upon them in flesh and then begin to walk. And that only happens through the foolishness of preaching. But it also happens on our knees, devoted to the Lord in prayer. If you backed up to chapter 1, verse 14, you notice this. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What are they doing before the Spirit comes? Before God pours out His Spirit in revival upon Jerusalem, they are on their knees praying for the Lord of heaven to do that very thing. We cannot expect that God is going to revive our valley if we're not willing to wear out our knees in prayer. This work was blessed by God because He promised just as our Lord did in Luke 11. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Are you asking for God to pour out His Spirit upon us, upon this valley? Are you asking in faith, believing that God will respond? God works through the humble, foolish means of prayer preaching. He's waiting and willing to fill you when you rely on Him in prayer. We, we have so many other things that we want to rely on. One of my favorite Puritans, John Howe, an English Puritan, said this, There is a great and aptness to trust in other means and let, our, let out our hearts to them. 
An arm of flesh signifies a great deal when the power of an almighty spirit is reckoned as nothing. And persons are apt to be very contriving and prone to forecast how such and such external forms would do our business and make the church and the Christian interest hugely prosperous. We love to create other means than the Holy Spirit for the advancement of the gospel. Right? The church growth movement has looked to the business world and it has watered down the gospel to get butts and seats. That's all it's concerned with. Numbers, right? More, more people. But at what cost? It's not the same message of the gospel that they're proclaiming. People are not being cut to the heart. Their hearts are not being torn open. Revival does not rest on methods. You go back and look at the history of revivals in America. These men were not... You read their sermons. There's nothing spectacular about them. They're just preaching the gospel. They're just showing forth Jesus Christ. And that's enough. That's all that's needed to convert people. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chooses men and women on their knees in prayer, relying on His Spirit, the foolishness of proclaiming the cross of Jesus Christ. But there's a great comfort here too. That that means that the results are not resting upon me and my giftedness. It's not about how much I know. It's not about whether I have this evangelism method down. It's not about if I know every answer to every apologetic question. But do I know Jesus Christ? Do I know Him experientially? Have I experienced the forgiveness of my sins? And can I explain that to somebody else? That I was an enemy of God and now I'm at peace. And I want you to have that. That's all you need to know. All you need to know is the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't rest on a method. And God is sovereign. The people He has prepared will come. But He's going to use you. He's going to use me on my knees proclaiming the only message that has ever transformed hearts. We don't have to invent stuff. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. When the Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, He equipped His people to tell of His mighty works and He opened ears so that others hear. And that same result of the Spirit's outpouring will be seen today when we boldly speak of Christ And when we sit under the preaching of the word, our hearts are torn open to hear what God would say. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we marvel at the power, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to take dead men and breathe life into them. This work, who is sufficient for these things? None of us. And yet, like a river flowing from the heavenly temple, the Spirit continues to flow and wells up into us in springs of everlasting water for all those who have come to Jesus Christ.
So this morning, we ask for hearts to be ripped open to hear the good news of the gospel, to, to have that desire so awoke in us that we cannot resist, that we cannot help but go out into the nations and speak of the mighty works of God. And you will give the increase to you. So equip your people to do that great work, bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise Amen. This morning, before we come to the table, 